Hello and welcome to the Golden Age of Cricket, a podcast which delves back into the annals of history and discusses some of the most memorable characters and moments from the so-called Golden Age of Cricket, the 25 years immediately preceding the First World War. My name is Tom Ford. My guest today is Peter Lloyd, who after a long and wide-ranging career as an academic and consultant in public health, drew on his lifelong passion for cricket literature and turned to writing. In 2020 and 2021, in collaboration with Peter Schofield, he produced two self-published pictorial narratives on Victor Tromper and Don Bradman, with the former awarded runner-up in the Australian Cricket Society Book of the Year. Turning to the Golden Age, in 2021, Peter self-published a biography of the New South Wales left-handed opening batsman Warren Bardsley, which was subsequently announced last August as the ACS Book of the Year. A companion self-published volume on Montague Alfred Noble has just been released and it is the subject of today's podcast. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here and to be a guinea pig, so to speak, in your podcast series. I'm um, fairly sure that they are going to be well received. If I could just editorialise for a minute before we get started on the questions and discussions. Um, the golden age of cricket, as you allude, is uh, the first golden age at, at any rate, because several golden ages exist in terms of the way that uh, folk over the years have eulogised certain periods. But I think the true aficionados would believe that the period of 1892 pre-war, pre-Great War, was definitely the first and probably the most magnanimous. So I would just like to flavour that by talking about or quoting from Benny Green, uh, Mm -hmm. the very well-known and well-written English cricket historian who about 35 years ago wrote a terrific history, a concise history, very broad-based, and he finishes it by talking about the Golden Age. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, it's an odd and endearing fact that about human nature in its relation to cricket, that the backward look is always with us, that the golden age and all of its romantic notions are behind us and always will be. Benny was adamant that the deeds of the giants of the past, the Ranges and the Jessops and the Trumpers, etc., are worthy of note and are far from dimmed by the passage of time. So well done you, Tom on helping to ensure that the special exploits of the Golden Ages are remembered. So I'm sorry, but I can't help but editorialise. It's, it's part of my, my personality. So let's fire away. Well, thank you for being the guinea pig, as you say, Peter, and thank you for that editorial. And I'm hoping over the course of this podcast, whether it's three episodes or 30 episodes, that the actual nature of the Golden Age and the question as to whether it truly was a golden age, is discussed and explored. So um, that is largely part of the reason of having this podcast is for people to discuss it and dissect it. So thank you for being the guinea pig. And um, But we're here today to discuss, of course, uh, Monty Noble. Peter, after the completion of your excellent biography on Bardsley, you swiftly moved on to writing Monty Noble, Cricketing Nobility. When did you decide to write a biography on Monty? 
as you alluded to earlier, um, uh, Peter Schofield and I did two pictorial narratives on Victor Trumper and Don Bradman, and uh, they were well received. We had a lot of support in that exercise from Colin Clowes of the uh, New South Wales Cricket Association, or Cricket New South Wales, as it's called now, uh, librarian statistician of note, uh, although he uh, suggests that that's not quite his goal, but not quite his brief, but he is a, an excellent numbers man. And he gave us terrific support in terms of um, uh, saving our bacon on a couple of occasions when uh, we alluded to certain events which were incorrect and had innings interspersed incorrectly. So Colin had become, a, a, I'd become quite a close friend of Colin's. Previously, I'd written a short bio on him for the Victorian uh, Australian Cricket Society magazine, annual magazine pavilion. And I have to say that if anyone has uh, any significant collections of books on Australian cricket since, well, for the, say the past 25 years, and you look through the acknowledgements pages on in those books, you'll find that Colin's name is uppermost. Colin is a, is a terrific guy, a, a dynamo, even though he's well into his 80s now. Um, he's astute and uh, very insightful. He's also more than just a statistician. He's a believer in the, uh, the worth of giving appropriate balance to a discussion. So he's quite good in terms of editing um, beyond numbers which um, I've found of great value. In fact, um, he was the preemptor as to why I wrote the, the biography on Warren Bardsley. He'd been telling me as he was working with, with me on, and Peter Schofield on the Bradman and Trumper book how he'd be delighted if something similar were to be done on Warren. Uh, Peter uh, Schofield wasn't uh, interested in taking uh, any further part in a, another book, which he felt may uh, be simply a cut and paste job on what we'd put together previously because of all the imagery we used. I believe that there was an opportunity, though, to write a more definitive and comprehensive biography on Warren. And I did so because Warren was Colin's favourite author, a favourite cricketer. So I was sort of paying Colin a favour in doing that. And as I'm working through the Bardsley biography, coming to the end of his of the story, which occurred during the height of the pandemic. So I basically immersed myself in Warren's story over a period of about eight or nine months. And it was draining physically and psychologically, but at the same time, it was a savior for me, like many people who were restricted in what they could do. Uh, so when I finished, I almost immediately realized that I needed to continue on. So I then had the thought of what subject would I next build upon? Um, I had three choices, uh, Monty Noble, Charlie McCartney and Sid Gregory. Colin Clowes was keen for me to work on Sid Gregory because over the years he'd, he'd collected and created a, a big catalogue of information and images, statistics on Sid and believed that he warranted uh, significant attention, which I agree to agree as well. But I then was confronted by the fact that um, another friend, a good friend, a cricket friend, um, said to me that he had close relation, relationships with a couple of people who came from the, from the noble, extended noble clan. And he believed that there was a family history which could be valuable in um, setting the scene and having some broad-based understandings of how uh, 
the noble tree uh, evolved into from England into Australia. So that sort of, um, I guess, uh, determined that that I chose Monty as the next as the next subject. Colin was still a little reluctant at that time, but by the time I was into chapter three and he'd been reading the the early versions, the chapters don't have a lot to do with cricket. But Colin was uh, he'd fallen in into tandem with me, so that made a big difference to my uh, prospects of creating a book of, of value. Because cricket's not just a game of the uh, dramatics on the field, it's also a game of numbers. And mm. for the true aficionados, I think the blend of accuracy and uh, colourful descriptions is a very important part of, of a successful book. I did find, though, with the Bardsley book, uh, I was lucky enough again to uh, have access to some correspondence between Warren's younger brother, Ray, or Mick as he was known, and a very good friend of mine as well, uh, a social historian from Sydney, Max Soling. And Max and Mick Bardsley had spent uh, quite a few sessions, mostly over the phone, but currently, but often by letter, talking about uh, the era when Mick was playing, which sort of coincided with Warren a, little, a few years later. And that really, I think, the family intimacy made all the difference. So I was looking for a similar sort of um, buoyancy or, or generation of ideas from the uh, the noble family genealogists who about 20 years ago, early 200s, 2000s, um, talked about aspects of the ancestral tree and the fact that there were eight brothers, uh, eight siblings of the first uh, Australian noble-based family uh, from the uh, mid-1900s and mid-1800s, I should say. Uh, so that was certainly a, a reason, a rationale as to why I pursued Monty Noble as a subject. Um, so I began um, in March 2022, which was about two months after um, the Bardsley book was released. And I felt that I was sort of in a um, uh, a routine. I think most writers get to a point where they begin to feel comfortable in their in their way of working. In my case, that means often um, spending a solid several hours in the in a morning uh, writing uh, perhaps two or three thousand words, and then leaving it till the next day, um, editing it. And beginning again and i've I found for me that works uh it doesn't mean that that's going to be the end product but over time i've worked a style of um, writing into what i think is a fairly uh constructive way of managing for me people have asked me how do you write a cricket book and um my bottom line is well you just start and then you proceed and then as time goes by um you'll think oh, that wasn't quite good enough because now I'm writing in a better format or a bit of better style. You might need to go back and edit. The worst part about writing is you become so wedded to your words on the page that culling is uh, a devastating um, fact. However, if, you, if you're an editor, that's your job. And I have editing edited quite a few um, other folk in, in the cricket writing sphere. So I know that um, it can make a big difference and it can help. But doing it yourself, I haven't really been edited by anybody up till now. So uh, 
it's probably harder to do it yourself because it's hard to give up something you think you say oh that that's a lovely phrase or a lovely sentence but it really it doesn't warrant being there it's just duplicating what, what's been said so um this is all about the writing format so it's let's get on to the um content of monty if you wish now without preempting anything and just touching on something you mentioned in your answer are biographies of Sid Gregory and Charlie McCartney in the pipeline or are you keeping that close to your heart? No, no. I'm, my next project is probably going to be a short monograph on Tom McKibben. Uh, there are a couple of people. Um, David Anstis, who's been very helpful for me and very um, uh, obliging in providing lots of images for uh, both the Bardsley and, and Noble book, um, has a, a small selection of Tom McKibben material. Plus, he's also a very good friend of Angus McKibben, an ancestor of Tom's, who's still in the Bathurst area where Tom originated from. And uh, we're going to, as a trio, um, provide sufficient, I think, for a serious monograph, not a deluxe version like the Noble and Barsley books, but something that um, uh, hasn't been done on Tom. Tom's got lots of skeletons in the closet, so to speak, and I think we can tease those out without being too um incriminating but there's definitely interesting stories there around him and his cricket on the field and his lifestyle off the field which i think will probably come out sometime later this year and then perhaps after that um sid gregory few biographies certainly of any great length or weight existed on monty prior to yours why do you think it took an ashes winning captain so long to receive his due good question uh, so Warren Barsley was rather a dour figure, although he did have a congenial inner circle uh, manner. Noble, by contrast, I think was perceived widely as being a person from a well-to-do middle-class background, someone who had certain social advantages that allowed him to devote time to a sport which he showed early promise. Three well-known Australian cricket historians and authors, should I name them? Yes. Max Bonnell, Rick Sissons um, and Richard Cashman told me separately, once I'd begun the Monty biography, that at one time or another, they'd all contemplated writing um, his life story. However, they had balked at the task, in part because they weren't sure that there was enough about him to write an entertaining account, despite the fact that his pedigree on the field was um, impressive. Uh, there appeared for them not to be any major skeletons in his closet. And despite his prodigious exploits as a batsman, bowler and captain, but he didn't think there was enough to warrant the effort involved in a major piece of research. Other more interesting uh, subjects apparently caught their attention. So how lucky was I? And I must say, in a, gen in a gentle fashion, how short-sighted they were, because if my book's anything to go by, M.A. Noble's life was full of dramatic moments, intriguing features, and a rattling of chains and assorted demons. Hmm. Um, I think the three historians who declined the opportunity to rigorously investigate Monty uh, may have been duped into thinking that there was little more to uncover after reading Ray Robinson's brief essay on the 12th Australian cricket captain in his 1975 book on Top Down Under. There are some gross falsehoods in Robinson's account that have been rusted on, become established facts, reinforced in all likelihood, as I see it, by Jack Pollard, who was often less than careful with the truth. Robinson did glean information on events and personalities from relatives, including Monty's uh, 
youngest child, Rodney, and a distant nephew, Charles, but their accounts were either ignored by the author or uh, erroneous to begin with. I should note that Rodney was just 19 years old when his dad died, and although Monty was a, a doting father, he was often at the SCG um, or away on business um, ventures interstate or following cricket, um, both in Australia and overseas as a journalist. And really, his mum, Nellie, Ellen Elizabeth Nellie, was the most uh, present person in his life by a long shot. Um, in an early paragraph on Boots, uh, the title of um, Robinson's essay on Monty in his um, On Top Down Under, uh, Boots was being a nickname of Monty's, which was used on occasions by those in his inner city circle, in the cricket circle. Um, Robinson wrote that Noble was a first generation Australian, youngest of eight sons of a couple from Egham in Surrey. The ship in which they migrated to Sydney had a cow aboard to supply milk for Maria Noble's first baby. Montague Alfred was born on the 28th of January, 1873, at home in Dixon Street, a thoroughfare now redolent of chop suey. He was delivered with musical honours. Hearing a military band passing, Maria prophesied that my son will be famous. The father, Joseph, a grocer, became a hotel manager, and Maria lent a hand serving in the bar. Her hand was stayed by such concern for customers' sobriety that she would serve no man more than two drinks. Uh, now, in that quite brief paragraph, there are five errors of fact and a total skirting of extremely significant family matters. And as an historian, I think it's very important to call out such misconceptions and set the record straight, no matter how appealing a good yarn might be. And Robinson was a very good uh, provider of yarns. Maria Collins, as she was then, uh, was just 11 years of age when she sailed to Australia, not with her husband, but rather with her father, Isaac, her stepmother, Sophia, a, a full brother, Charles, and, and three step-siblings in 1841 aboard a boat, the Buzra Merchant, which was a vessel that had had a very checkered past. Uh, there's an interesting story there, which um, I, I cover in the, in, the, in the biography. The Collins family did come from Surrey, where Isaac was a master uh, baker. Joseph Noble, on the other hand, came from Lancashire, he arrived in Australia from America, where he'd been prospecting unsuccessfully for gold, among other ventures, in 1851 or 1852, that is about 10 years after Maria. The couple met soon after Joseph arrived in Sydney. Um, Joseph had a sister who was a neighbour of the Collins family in the Rocks districts of Sydney. However, they didn't marry until 1859, with their first child, Henry, being born in 1860. Joseph was an innkeeper before becoming a grocer and a builder of some dubious repute. He was also an inveterate alcoholic who abused his wife mercilessly and occasioned bodily harm to his older sons. So Monty was the last born, as Robinson alludes. He was born in Mill Street Haymarket, a thoroughfare which no longer exists, uh, which housed then the Castlemaine Brewery. By the time uh, Monty was 10 or 11, he had moved house with his mother on at least six occasions in premises that were far from salubrious. His upbringing was far from a comfortable middle-class base. So uh, that fundamental 
uh, basis for the story, I believe, sets a train in, in motion that Robinson doesn't allude to in his reasonably well uh, portrayed approach to Monty's cricketing career. Uh, but a biography de demands much more than just um, focus on a sporting attribute. What spurs someone to self-publish a cricket book and how do you manage the pressures of, say, conception, design, production and distribution? I think self-publishing um, has quite a few minuses, but one big plus, you have control and you can decide uh, what the content of the book is going to uh, contain, uh, what the book is going to look like, how much imagery you want to put into it, quality of the paper and in the case of uh, the four books that I've written, two with Peter Schofield and the two on my own, uh, there was a big emphasis on making these deluxe limited edition books that would be real collector's items and uh, I recall when the, um, uh, the Victor Trumper pictorial first was released, Gideon Haig in the Australian um, magazine or uh, newspaper with his weekly column at the end of the of the year nominated that book as his favourite book. It came on, as you said, uh, later to be awarded the runner-up um, uh, gong in the ACS uh, Book of the Year Award. Haig was very complimentary about the book. He felt that um, both Peter and I had put a lot of genuine effort into making it something out of the, out of the box. However, he did mention that was certainly not a commercial venture and uh, none of those books have made any money they're not for profit they're labors of love the the writing of the book all the four books was mostly me peter was very generous in terms of his collections and we talked about how best to uh, complement text with imagery and we came to a consensus and we were very lucky i, I had worked with a graphic designer on a previous book about um, Australian sporting magazines a couple of years earlier, which uh, was uh, not the same format. It was a more conventional book with a few images, but I knew that um, this chap in Adelaide, David Bradbury, uh, had a lot of creative ideas. So with Peter and my agitations and, cons and consultations with David, we designed a format that was, I think, perfect for uh, concisely discussing pieces of memorabilia in the first two books. Uh, there had been a pictorial narrative on Trump written by, um, by uh, oh, the name just escapes me for a second, um, the Australian, Ashley Mallet, which came out about 1980. And Ashley had um, access to an awful lot of material, imagery from libraries and from um, individual sources. But the book was a mismatch of text, some of which wasn't accurate, and ill placement of uh, imagery. Plus, it was a very basic uh, stock standard black and white uh, parade of, of materials. It didn't do justice to, to Trumper at all. So I think we saw that as a very basic baseline. We were going to work on something on beyond that that would be regarded as a, of an excellent quality. Uh, however, that's, that's, that's one side of the um, self-publishing game. The other side, the more difficult side perhaps, is the uh, packaging and materially uh, uh, ma making the, uh, the product uh, 
to a point where it can be packaged and shipped uh, comfortably across the world in, in, in that case, and to distributors who are willing to take the risk of buying a book, even though at a discount price, and making a profit. So I think most self-publishers, the biggest burden for them, barrier for them is finding distributors. Well, fortunately, both Peter and I had good long long, uh, long time links with distributors, both in uh, book dealers, both in England and Australia. So we were fortunate in that respect. Um, our business model was one where we required pre-subscribers to pay up front. We didn't have funds to uh, provide payment to the printers and the graphic designer and the book binders. So we needed to have um, some people at least uh, take, a, take a risk perhaps. Um, after the first book came along, we had less uh, problems at all. Most people now who have bought those four books want, has, have wanted each of the successive volumes. In fact, they want them only if they can have the same number. So there's a chap who likes numbers 13 and 87, they're his in advance. <laughs> so uh, self-publishing can be very rewarding, but it can also be very draining. And, but it's, it's worth doing. Obviously, I, I still want to do it. So uh, for me, it's a, a big outlet and uh, I enjoy it. Now, for many modern cricket fans, the name M.A. Noble is one of a handful adorning a grandstand at the historic Sydney Cricket Ground, but I fear many know little or nothing about him. From my own experience, when I think of the pantheon of golden age cricketers, I think of Trumper, Grace, Ranji, Jessup, etc. But not often Monty Noble. Why do you think that is? Monty, or Alf, or Boots, to his cricketing peers, was far from a demonstrative personality um, like those renowned cricketers that you mentioned, and indeed others of the period, Armstrong, Jackson, Fry, McLaren, Duff, Hill, for example. Uh, he was a charismatic leader and a highly respected um, and, and, yes, adored teammate. However, he was never overly flamboyant. Um, and he didn't generally engage with the crowd. In fact, he frequently spoke of the absolute necessity of mentally blocking out all distractions, including the noise and disturbance of the barrackers, and cajoled his teammates into doing the same. And throughout my biography, I do focus on Noble as persuasive force, who often took the lead in negotiating player conditions and dealing with what he saw as autocratic and authoritarian cricket authorities. But I've concluded that he wasn't fundamentally a natural and confident person on occasions when he was among people he didn't know well or who held views that were extremely contrary to his own. He could comfortably argue a case before a jury of peers, but he preferred to set an example more by his actions. Nevertheless, he was forceful enough to raise the shackles of others, notably the influential New South Wales and Australian Board of Control power broker, Billy McAlone. In the field, of course, he was often praised by contemporary analysts for the brevity of his directions and for his insistence on discipline and formality. He marshaled his forces meticulously um, and altered his fields with a minimum of fuss. He insisted that all his fieldsmen continually observe his body mannerisms, arched eyebrows and the like. Monty was the first 
international captain to plan unique approaches to opposition batsmen. His use of the in-out field was revolutionary. In the 1903-04 series, um, in his first stint as Australian captain against Plum, Warner, Plum Warner's uh, English side, the more thoughtful among the opposition players acknowledged Monty's superiority to their own skipper in the subtle art of captaincy. So what I'm suggesting basically is that Noble was cut from a different cloth to many of the stellar performers of the golden age. He was cerebral and considered rather than overly showy. Uh, the fact that he was an all-rounder may also have had a bearing on the manner in which he's been perceived. Perhaps this has muted or watered down a comprehensive appreciation of his various qualities. One of the things about your book which struck me was just how little Monty wrote about his own life. His cricket books, which he wrote uh, predominantly in retirement, focus on later Ashes tours and cricketers. What challenge did this present you as his biographer in understanding exactly who he was? I think all biographers worth their salt strive to uncover the essence of their subjects and describe their beliefs and their values and recount their um, personality traits and foibles. Sometimes, though, assessments must be based on the balance of probabilities. You're right, Monty rarely wrote about himself, but he often spoke about his views and what he saw as important. Uh, for example, reward for effort and fair payment for absence um, from professional employment and touring without the encumbrances of loved ones. He held very conservative political values and took a dim view of intemperate behaviour, likely stemming from his childhood memories of growing up in a fractured family. Interestingly, in respect of the intemperance matter, Noble, who'd championed the initial selection of Reggie Duff to the Australian Eleven in 1901-02, was a no-show at Duff's funeral just 10 years later when Reggie's rampant alcoholism proved his downfall in 1911. Uh, context, context is all. So the issue of racial prejudice, for example, needs to be judged according to conventions of the time. And the jury is out on whether Monty should be considered a racist, a matter which crops up in the book on several occasions. Several cricketing peers, Les Poitevin, for example, and Warren Bardsley, suggested that Noble's dislike of what he perceived as racial weaknesses, lack of concentration, inconsistent performances, lack of attention to detail, were at the core of his professional disdain of the Aboriginal fast bowler Jack Marsh. Bardsley was quite forthright much later in stating that Noble's failure to mentor Marsh to help him develop as a bowler cost Australian cricket dearly in the first decade of the 20th century. Noble, on the other hand, constantly defended his non-selection of Marsh in the face of criticism and his decision as captain to frequently assign Marsh 12th man duties based solely on form, he suggested, or rather lack thereof, and Marsh's propensity to waver in his action to the point that he was called on several occasions. Monty made no bones about his preference for insistent medium paces, uh, Arthur McBeath and Alex Kermode. McBeath in particular was one who troubled Noble at the crease, while Marsh, although he did dismiss uh, Noble on occasions, was often on the receiving end of a Noble batting masterclass. So to sum up, I think there's ample material available to develop an appreciation of who Monty Noble truly was. The inner person shines through on many occasions in the biography. Look, if I could just take a, a few minutes to read a passage from the biography mm -hmm. to illustrate this point. At the end of the uh, 
1923-24 grade season, Monty's 30th with Paddington and his penultimate annual outing. He'd play in five matches in the following seasons. Paddington Club honoured him with a commemorative banquet at the local town hall to applaud his uh, to applaud his 10,000 runs and 6,600 first grade wickets in the Sydney competition. So from pages 517-18 of the book, I'm sure some of your listeners will have purchased a copy. And for those mm-hmm. who haven't, um, this will be an insight for them. Um, and I, I'm sort of, maybe I'm summarising a little bit, but uh, you'll get the gist. Um, this celebratory function was arranged by E.M. Green, Honorary Secretary of the club, and Jack Pope, Honorary Treasurer, a longtime pal and even bridesgroom of Monty uh, later. Over 100 people attended, with representatives coming from every, every uh, period in the history of the club and from all the mainland states other than Western Australia. Reading several columns by those who were witnesses to the occasion, it appears that everybody who was there had a turn at the podium. Two brief experts, uh, excerpts of accounts, I think, suffice to provide a sense of the evening. The first is from John Portis, an 1893 foundation member of the club, who, in searching for an appropriate passage to describe the striking quality of Noble's character and his person, chose to quote from the famous valedictory poem In Memoriam, often linked with S. Maunder, but in reality, really the 1861 panegyric of William Jeffrey Prowse on the great man of Kent, Alfred Minn. Portis understood man's, M-A-N's, affinity to cricket's ancient history and law and his devotion to England. And this quote from the poem, when the great old Kent 11, full of pluck and hope began, the great battle with all England, single-handed man to man, how the hop men watched their hero, massive, muscular and tall, as he mingled with the players, like a king among them all. To some old Kent enthusiasts, it would almost seem a sin to doubt their country's triumph when led on by Alfred Minn. A terrific poem. As J.C. Davis explained in his report, the resemblance between the heroic figure of Minn and his modern day equivalent noble was perceived to be uncanny, even down to the name. The organizing committee of the function appreciated this congruence and used the line, massive, muscular and tall, like a king among them all, to decorate the menu cards and the emblems affixed to the walls of the town hall that night. I wish I had a picture of that event. I Hmm. couldn't find one. (laughs) Uh, The second excerpt is from Noble himself. He started with an anecdote when responding to the many accolades and episodes of reminiscences. Paddington visit Ipswich in Queensland some years ago uh, in the Easter period. And we had a player says Monty, who was wearing a skipper's naval cap when he went in last. What do you want that cap for, cried the onlooker. You're not at sea now? You're wrong, old chap, was the reply. I was never more at sea in my life. And he was bowl first ball, added added MAN. Grave and gay, continued Noble. The work done by the Paddington pioneers, including Portis, JC Davis, the late Dan Hogan, and the late uh, Cash Neal, he praised. The influence of Alec Bannerman, who had um, worked for the good of the club over several decades. Uh, he talked about, if you were late when Alec was captain, you heard of it, he said. One of Alec's sayings was, if you can't be a cricketer, son, look like one. 
I regret that he's not here tonight. He was ailing and he died soon thereafter. Vernon Ransford, who'd travelled from Victoria earlier and spoken in high praise of Noble as player and captain, according to Noble now, is the most wonderful outfielder I have ever seen. We were playing England at the Oval and Fry, who was very aggressive, was batting. Anything he hit over the bowler or mid-on was almost certain to reach the boundary. Ransford and Warren Bardsley were our outfields, and I've never seen anything better. Vernie would return every ball right over the stumps. Albert Sweetman told you, in a jocular way, that he taught me how to play cricket. And you laughed. Well, he did teach me a good deal in my early days, and I, I am also indebted to my uh, brother Harry. I thought he used to bowl too fast, yet he wasn't a fast bowler, because I was just a little chap then. There's one who has been the greatest worker for Paddington. He is still with us. I refer to Jack Pope. I've been closely associated with him for many years, not only in cricket matters, but in a personal and family sense. I've never had uh, a known a greater organiser than Popey. So the function went on into the early hours of the morning. Uh, I, I think there's an awful lot there that you can glean about Noble's personality. He was adored, uh, particularly by those who knew him very well. And he was a very generous giver of uh, his emotions to those he felt were within his inner circle. Uh, yes, he didn't write a lot about himself in formal ways, but in face-to-face -face issues, certainly when you're able to delve into the archives and find written uh, accounts of what he said in person, I think it's very genuine uh, to get a, a feel, a true feeling for him as a person. I also sense, reading your biography, that a lot of the history surrounding Monty's early life comes from his own descendants who have compiled a family history. And I think you did touch on this earlier. I think it was published in 2001 or thereabouts. Was this a contributing factor in deciding to write his biography? I guess it, to a degree it was. Um, uh, the biography focused on um, principally on the eight siblings, the eight brothers of, of the uh, marriage of uh, Maria and Joseph. Um, the book is over 300 pages in total and 12 pages are devoted to Monty. The, the biographers, John and Gwen, uh, were from the Henry Noble clan and Henry gets an awful lot of attention, as does um, second brother Charles. Uh, the biography is a compilation. Um, it hasn't been edited there are conflicting points of view, which is fair enough. I think it's often up to the reader to uh, mould the truth from various sources. Uh, it was very well received by the family. However, in discussions with members of the family who have bought my M.A. Noble biography, they're delighted to have finally had some definitive dis discussion around pivotal points that were skirted over by the family historians. They were amateur historians. They did engage a genealogist and used a couple of librarians to gain further information. But uh, they were working in a time before Trove, which as any writer or, or devotee of cricket history would know, or history in general, um, is the fantastic um, source for digitization of Australian newspapers. Um, so I'm not denigrating John and Gwen's work. However, there were a lot of um, uh, useful leads but many dead ends and the dead ends in fact were much more interesting than the leads so uh, 
it was certainly a, a factor in my choosing to do the story on Monty. As I said before, the intimacy that I found from uh, the discussions between um, Warren Barnes's brother Mick and the historian Max Soling were really good. And it's true, I, I do, I did find some great background information that I could research in more depth. And I, I, I have to say that um, the family history was um, solid. It was a solid history, but it wasn't ever their intent to publish it beyond the family. So it's quite interesting. Um, my closest contact in the noble clan, um, who has given many photographs, is Monty's um, eldest granddaughter, Elizabeth. She knows li very little about the wider uh, noble family. In fact, hasn't had a copy of the um, noble history. Uh, she's now got one. And after she received the final version of Noble's book, she was overawed with how much information she was unfamiliar with and how she had felt certain things were in, in such a fashion, which she now no, knows isn't the case. It's quite a rewarding feature of working on a, a book when there are people around who are so emotionally attached. In, mm. in Warren Bardsley, Bardsley's case, um, the death of Warren's nephew in uh, 2018 was the end of the Bardsley name, which is... Um, you know, I guess that these things happen, but in the Monty Noble case or the Noble family case, they're all over the place. There are hundreds of them. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming the book might get passed around from person to person. Mm. So, But yeah, I think, so I guess to sum up again, I think the idea that you can rely refer to material that um, gives you an insight and a beginning think of uh, thought uh, is useful. Yes. Now, very important question, Peter Lloyd. How should we actually refer to Monty? I know many of his teammates had numerous monikers for him, and you indeed use many of these throughout your book. Well, it was a little complex as the book unfolded. I mean, I, I, I knew this was going to be the case when I began, but I attempted to segregate his monikers um, according to each chapter. So on the cricket field and within the clubs and the teams he played for, the various cricketing authorities that um, within which he was involved, he was predominantly Alf, um, sometimes Boots, sometimes. Within the family, he was always Alf. Um, out of interest and in order of birth for those who uh, reach maturity amongst the siblings, Henry, uh, the eldest brother, born in 1860, um, was either Henry or Harry on the cricket field. Charles was always Charles. Edward, E.D. W-A-L-D, not Edward, Eldwell, was always Ted. Ted was um, a first-class cricketer who played uh, for several seasons with a variety of Sydney clubs, went on a tour with Monty um, to New Zealand and played first-class cricket uh, there. I think he played five games. Um, he was Ted. He was a very good, um, uh, solid middle-order batsman. Um, then there was Septimus, which was a name that was often applied to the seventh born, uh, but he was known as Arthur. Um, I have a, a, a lovely touch uh, in the book. I only give it a footnote, but it is worthy. 92-year-old um, Donald Scott Orr, who was a descendant of Monty's eldest brother, Henry, recalls Alf and Auntie Nellie. He recalls Uncle Alf and Auntie Nellie 
visiting his family when he was six or seven years old at their family home in Sydney's inner western suburb of Five Dock. His memories of Uncle Alf are of his large and imposing physique, his mellifluous voice, his attentive nature to all in the inner circle, including the children. He had time for everyone and was interested in what was happening with their lives. Uh, that's, I think, it's lovely to have had Elizabeth's support, Elizabeth Noble's support. She's a signature to, signature to the book. But to actually have somebody who had a physical relationship with, uh, with Monty is also an added bonus. Donald was um, quite a, a, a very intelligent man. And, and when we talked two or three times, he was um, totally on top of matters. Uh, but he was a little distant from Monty and only could relate to his early versions of things because Monty died when he was about eight. Uh, but it was a nice touch to put into the book, I think. Um, so that's the family. But the public knew Monty as Monty or M.A. or M.A.N. Um, or Mary Ann, um, which was the composite of his initials, a fact about which his elderly mother um, was most upset. And this is a true story. When she first heard it being chanted by the crowd at a first class match, which she was attending. Um, Ray Robinson makes quite a lot of that in his in his brief essay. Um Oh, there's a there's a touching a corollary to the M A N Noble uh, label, M um, A N Noble, sorry the M A N label. Monty and Nelly suffered the extreme grief grief of losing their second child and firstborn son Morris at the age of seven years in 1923. Morris Ashley Noble was buried at the family plot uh, plot uh, beside. Uh, in the cemetery at Ramwick, where Monty later was buried after he died in 1940. So the resting place of the two has the MANs, the two MANs side by side. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the initials for Morris were uh, um, deliberately chosen to replicate Dad. Um, Nellie survived a husband by 23 years and she died while on a trip to the uh, United States where she was visiting Rodney, um, who uh, by then was a high-ranking officer in the Australian uh, Royal Air Force, um, and his family, and she was buried in Washington. Otherwise, she would have been buried beside her two MANs. Be a sport and join the fun, jolly good fellows everyone. Come along, be one of the boys. Let's now turn our attention to cricket, Peter, which I'm sure many of uh, our listeners are here for. Is it fair to say that Monty wasn't a prodigy, uh, rather that he grew into his cricketing ability? I think it's very true to say, Tom. Um, Monty was far from a prodigy, although that label seems to have stuck to a degree following his 152 not out against Andy Stoddard's 1894-95 side. Uh, when Monty was playing for the uh, 18 Sydney Juniors in December 1894 at the SCG. 21-year-old Monty, um, not sure he should have been classified as a junior, um, uh, sort of conjectural, I think. Uh, he had toured New Zealand, as I said before, with brother Ted, uh, which would have been a, um, a terrific experience for them, reminiscent of the... Um, experience that Warren and McBarsley had later later in um, uh, in the life when they were uh, touring together, the Shaky Isles and, and bunking together. 
But um, a closer reading of that match in which um, Monty scored 152 not out suggests that um, the tourists thought that Trumper, who was 16 years of age at the time, was the genuine prodigy, um, exemplified by his dashing stroke play where he uh, batted for 85 minutes and scored 67 runs. Many local pundits suggested that Monty's knock was sort of littered with fortuitous strokes and heavily sprinkled with luck. State selectors were uh, impressed by Trumper uh, and he was selected for the very next Sheffield Shield match in Adelaide in January 1895. Noble had to wait until the following Shield clash in Sydney for his debut into first-class cricket against Victoria in late January 1895. Uh, With limited opportunities, he failed to impress in this game and he had to wait until the 1896-97 season for his next opportunity. When once again selected for New South Wales, for the state's southern tour on the back of solid form in grade uh, with bat and ball, no one seemed quite sure whether his promotion to the first-class arena was as a batsman or as an all-rounder. This conundrum conundrum was resolved when he bowled in only one of the four Sheffield Shield clashes and then only as a fifth and fourth change bowler uh, to rest the front-liners. State skipper at the time, Tom Garrett, knew of Monty's potential with the ball but he had a formidable arsenal of trundlers at his disposal as New South Wales swept all before them in winning the annual competition without losing a single match. Meanwhile, Monty's batting form saw him finish the season in second place in the aggregate table, 344 runs from six innings behind Jack Lyons of South Australia, 404 runs from seven innings. But Monty had the higher average, 68.8 compared with Lyons, 57.71. Monty was then first selected for Australia after a sterling 1896-97 season. He played in the second Ashes Test at the MCG in January 1998 against Stoddart's latest touring part, party, uh, which was captained by Archie McLaren. And Noble was considered a batsman who bowled a bit. His national skipper, Victorian um, Harry Trott, was largely unaware of Monty's talents with the ball having only seen him bowl on a few occasions across three first-class matches, primarily as a change bowler and only with limited success. Monty came in with Australia well-placed uh, uh, at 5 for 434 in this timeless test match. He was very nervous. Let's hear what Clem Hill had to say about his new test uh, comrade in one of his 1933 reflective newspaper articles. Clem says... I can see him now, a long, thin, gawky fellow. He was very serious and took failure to heart very much. He and Trumper had played against the Englishman in 1894. In this first test of his, Tom Richardson pitched a ball outside his off stump and yet it shattered the wicket with Noble's match that perched in the air, presumably with the idea of allowing the ball to pass. Noble was quite dispirited and went straight to one of the older players, perhaps it was Hugh Trumbull, given their emerging relationship, And he remarked, I suppose after such a silly shot, uh, they'll never pick me for Australia again. Hardly what you'd call a prodigy, but there was more to follow as Hill continues. At that time, few knew Noble as a bowler. During England's first innings, Sid Gregory, compatriot New South Welshman, went along to trot and suggested that uh, Alf be given a try. Sid said, he's a young fellow who can make the ball swerve a bit. 
So Noble was thrown the ball, and although he took only one wicket, that of Ted Wainwright, caught easily by Ernie Jones at mid-off for 21, he impressed us. In the second innings, after England had followed on 205 runs behind, Ramsey was going very well, and the Australians seemed to be in a pocket. Noble was brought on, and he got Ramsey with a beauty in the second over, and from that time onwards, he became a tower of strength for Australia as a bowler. I, I well remember that delivery, says Clem. Uh, it, was, it proved the undoing of the English champion. Many times in later years, I had to keep it out of my wicket too. It was a ball of a good length, which looked to a right-hander, Clem was a left-hander, it looked to, uh, to a right-hander as if it had pitched on the leg stump. At the last moment, it would swerve to pitch off on the off stump and then would turn back, hitting the middle of the leg stump. Mary Ann, uh, quoted by uh, Clem, as he became known afterwards, captured six wickets in that second innings of England for 49 runs off 17 overs with one maiden. Truly a very auspicious opening to his very fine career in Test cricket. However, uh, Hill became even more expansive in his ruminations when he insisted that, unlike Trumper, Noble was not a born cricketer. He made himself one. Out of form, he was next door to useless with the bat but he did not stint himself in the slightest in the manner of training and exercise and practice when he was getting ready for a tour or a season. He made himself a bowler and he practically forced himself to be a batsman. As a captain, he wouldn't stoop to think for a point against an opponent. And I think that says it all. You touch in that answer early on in your answer on Victor Trumper. Um, and indeed, it was one of the great parallels of Monty's life something you do so eloquently throughout your book was the life and career of Victor Trumper. What was Monty's relationship like with Trumper and how was Monty affected by the latter's tragically early death? Uh, well, well, thanks for the compliment. I, I really wanted to uh, impress upon the readership that there was this uh, sig very significant relationship. It's a, it's a well-known fact that Monty and Victor were close friends from the moment they became acquainted with one another on the cricket field. There's a, a deal of comment about their link during schoolboy days, but that's a bit of a furphy because Monty left Crown Street Public School the year before Trumper enrolled there. What's more certain is that Monty um, was very influential in encouraging Vic to play for Paddington District Cricket Club uh, in the early years of the Sydney District competition when residency qualifications were still being ironed out uh, in their infancy, so to speak. From that moment, they were inseparable. They were allies on and off the field, similar in their commitment and devotion to the niceties of cricket out in the middle, if not in the dressing sheds. Um, Vic was notorious for his jumble kit. Take it from Fergie, Bill Ferguson, a novice, another novice tourist. Monty, although only a recently knighted um, test cricketer himself, was central to Vic being given the nod to tour England in 1899 as an extra fully paid up member of an expanded squad. How fortunate the decision was, given injuries and ailments within the collective. I think that tour, uh, that tour was a revelation of the skills of both players. Individually or often in combination, they were either winning or saving tests for Australia against a rampant foe and pulling together day in and day out over the course of several months across four tours. Trumper, like Bardsley, was distraught when Noble announced his what they believed was premature retirement from international cricket following the 1909 Ashes tour. Vic's entire representative career, let alone his club cricket, had been moulded, modelled, moulded in the warmth of his mentor's encouragement. 
When Trumper died young, after years of dogged refusal to capitulate, Noble was incapacitated. Rodney Cavalier captured the distressing personal drama so evocatively in his foreword to Monty's biography. And I quote, Noble's devotion to comrades, and this is a word of much substance for a man steeped in political convention, was a sig signature of the man. Evinced in reports of Monty by the open grave as the body of the sublime and immortal Victor Trumper was lowered, the finality of Vic's death overwhelmed Monty Noble. Literally, he fell apart at the realisation Vic was gone forever. One reporter described the sight of Monty as pathetic, the word employed in its correct meaning. End of quote. Then, in June 1936, 21 years after Vic's death, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation radio channels across Australia presented a special evening program, I Knew a Man, Victor Trumper. Delivered live from uh, the uh, ABC studios in Sydney, Noble's strained tones mesmerised his latter-day audience. He was a practice broadcaster, but the harrowing devastation he'd experienced many years earlier was still audibly raw. They were very close. Now, we're going to touch on Monty's statistics a bit later, but he, of course, was very capable with both bat and ball. Is it possible to say which area he excelled, or was he a true all-rounder? In my opinion, during Noble's career, he was at times a complete all-rounder and at other times either a stellar batsman or a bowler without peer in terms of line length and use of atmospherics. Many factors, I think, are significant here. His state of mind, in, particularly, in particular how motivated he was to, to dominate, his level of fitness, the conditions under which um, he was required to play and, and how a particular match was poised. J.C. Davis owner and sole editor of the Sydney's leading weekly sporting paper, The Referee, for almost the entire period in which Noble played cricket, and also an executive officer of the Paddington District Cricket Club, so a very close affiliate of uh, Monty's, was a long-standing admirer and a person of ge uh, genuine importance and influence um, as Monty's career unfolded. He often wrote about the need, as he saw it, for Noble to be seriously challenged before he drew on his full power of concentration and resolve. Pity the poor opposition who came across him when he was totally fixated on victory or dismissive of the possibility of defeat. Davis had great delight in recounting all such occasions where Monty dominated, whether it be in a test arena or in the UK or Australia or at Hampton Park for his club. Taking his test career as a whole, though, he became the second fastest Australian cricketer to achieve the double. 1,000 runs and 100 wickets in 1905. It had taken him 32 matches, just two more than it did George Giffen in 1896. So I think at the bottom, at the end of the day, you'd have to say he was an all-rounder of high, high skill. But there were moments when his one of the other attributes um, dominated. But if you add on his captaincy skills and his fielding ability, um, he was the complete package. That's a good point. An allegation which followed Monty's playing career, and perhaps even to this day, is that he had an illegal bowling action. Accusations of throwing began quite early in his career, and following his first tour of England in 1899, the columnist F.S. Ashley Cooper wrote, and I quote, There cannot be any room for doubt in the minds of those who have seen him bowl on several occasions that now and again he most certainly threw. 
He has not been nobled for throwing. It is true, but there is an old proverb which declares that lookers-on see most of the game. And as one who has seen several of the Australians' matches, I have not the slightest hesitation in declaring that noble through. What do you have to say on the throwing allegations that followed him? Certainly this is an issue to consider, Tom. Um, it's a significant issue. One which, as you say, has bothered interstate and international contemporaries and commentators. Look, I can, I can wax on at length, often my preference to do so, but I have to point out, as um, Ashley Cooper mentions, that Monty was never called by an umper, including fearless Dimbola, Dimbola Jim Phillips, despite the best efforts of sometimes national teammate, Victorian captain and newspaper columnist Jack Worrell. Monty was given the full support of all the major protagonists in the three Sheffield Shield states. The Victorians refused to play in a side captained by Worrell as a consequence of his defamatory ac accusations, which he uh, parlayed with Phillips. Davis was adamant, and my position too, benefit of the doubt. Remember, Tom, I was desperate for you to uncover long-lost footage of Monty turning his arm over to include in the biography. Mm. Um, ancient footage of other trundlers exists, but nary a glimmer of Alf's bowling actions and extenuations extensions. So, um, so hard to look back. And there were times when throwing was a plague and seen as such. This was a period, similarly, uh, during Don Bradman's era. Um, I just have to give benefit of the doubt to Monty. He was a true believer in the in the correct approach to cricket. Hmm. If there were any thoughts that he did throw, I don't think it would have been intentional. I think you're right. Until footage does resurface, which may never happen and is probably becoming increasingly so, we may just never have a definitive answer on the matter. It's funny how CB Fry at one stage claimed that uh, Monty was a thrower and then later eulogised him for his bowling. Similarly, uh, Jack Worrell, uh, despite the period when he was intensely interested in, I think there was a degree of, um, he had been dropped from the Australian side. I think there was a degree of jealousy uh, when he started accusing various players, not just Monty, but also Jack Saunders. Um, later in life, in his dotage, perhaps, Worrell claimed that Monty was one of the greatest bowlers that Australia had ever produced. So, yeah. Monty also played a lot of baseball in Sydney, uh, which might be surprising to some of the listeners. Um, and so did Trumper, which might be even more surprising. I would imagine this is possibly where he learnt to swerve the ball, as they called it back in Monty's day, um, to tremendous success. Do you think this could be where the accusations of throwing came about? Perhaps, although it's certainly, uh, and I believe this is really the case, the, the link with baseball provided Noble with the insights onto how to swerve the ball. Throwing, uh, I think, is, is an extension beyond the involvement with baseball. Um, Monty was a major baseball exponent on the square at second base, a position not too dissimilar from point in cricket. And in, he was also very uh, prominent in the New South Wales and Australian baseball boardroom. 
his credentials justified acknowledgement when he was inducted into the Australian Baseball Hall of Fame in 2010, a year before he was awarded the same accolade in the New South Wales Cricket Hall of Fame. Yeah. When that award was first instituted in 2008, Victor Trumper and Charlie McCartney from the Golden Age were part of the initial inductee pro group. Uh, and then in 2009, Warren Bardsley. Monty had to wait until the third year of the program. Should I suggest go figure? Um, just out of interest, Arthur Bailey was gonged in 2015 and Sid Gregory in 2017. I personally had my had a say in, develop, in determining who was um, uh, enrolled in 2018 from the past era, but I can't say uh, what my preference was, although I wasn't disappointed. Um, but back to Monty. He wasn't a pitcher uh, in baseball, um, but he took great delight in winding up and throwing baseballs back to the catcher with a modified uh, round arm action. He had very large hands and broad shoulders, and he could make the ball twang into the catcher's mitt. Um, he saw how the better baseball pitchers were able to curve the ball through the air to confuse uh, the batters, and he learnt much from expat American Tom Gleason who captained the Paddington baseball team to great success in the early 1900s when, as you say, Monty and Vic uh, Trumper, as well as Ted Noble, were part of the team and a couple of the other uh, Paddington cricket uh, uh, first graders. Of course, um, in baseball, the ball doesn't bounce before arriving at its destination. Monty practiced bowling cricket balls with a slightly roundish action and found that he was able, on occasions, to make the ball curl around both sides of two single stumps positioned in the wicket on a short and a good length before it landed. He found he was able to do that more often um, when the ball was relatively new and dry and when the, the seam was proud. Uh, when the wind was in his face was also an advantage. He also had the capacity to make the ball bounce steeply off a good length. Um, and in modern parlance, his strong grip and his large hands allowed him to make the ball revolve at a higher rate than most others could achieve. There's another passage from Ray Robinson's essay uh, on Noble, which I think is worth uh, uh, quoting from. This is Ray Robinson uh, talking. With a keen eye and a commendable turn of phrase, born of, born of toil and sweat, Robinson nailed Monty's ability with the ball. His appreciation of Marianne's novel medium pace spin swerve creates a remarkable word picture to engage the reader. Noble's ability with the ball is well matched by the journalist's adroit use of momentum. And here is, I'm quoting, um, the innovator acquired the swerve, that is Noble, acquired the swerve from baseball, which he learned to play when USA sporting goods company AG Spaulding's sent out two American demonstration teams, the Chicago White Sox and all American uh, and all America teams in 1888-89. Instead of pressing two or three fingers on the ball seam like a spinner, Noble held it between his thumb and his strong corn-studded forefinger. On the tourist of tracks, all he needed was some sort of headwind for his spin or swerve to be difficult. This deceitful ball, plus a well-conceived quick one, and a penetrating off-cutter from a moist pitch were reasons why England's Indian batting genius, Ranji, rated him amongst the six best medium paces he ever faced. So baseball was of value to Monty, both in terms of his uh, career interest in the administrative side of it, but also in terms of his fielding abilities and in the way that he saw um, some opportunities to uh, develop a, a form of bowling that 
very few others could emulate. So in your mind, Peter, was Monty the best swerve or swing bowler uh, in cricket during his time on the international stage? Look, he was definitely up there and for a long time. Uh, But George Hurst of Yorkshire in England was also a brilliant exponent of the swerve as he matured and bowled a little slower than when he was in his prime. His exploits in what's known as Jessup's match at the Oval in 1902 when he helped England defeat Australia by one wicket, a legendary. He took the wickets of Trumper, Duff, Hill, Darling and Gregory. Only Noble in the top six escaped his lethal spell either by bowling the batsmen out outright or having them caught behind. Hurst was still producing the unplayable ball in the 1909 Ashes series when Noble fell to his guile on a couple of occasions. The other devilish exponent of the art of swerve during the Golden Age was Bart King of Philadelphia, who was considered by many to be a better bowler than Sidney Barnes. It was the lateness of King's swerve which set him apart. He became the leading wicket-taker in England in the 1908 season, when a gentleman of Philly toured the UK. So I think those three were on a par. Perhaps Noble's uh, durability was beyond the other two. That concludes part one of today's podcast on Monty Noble, featuring his biographer, Peter Lloyd. Keep an eye out for part two on the Golden Age of Cricket podcast. I'm Tom Ford. Bye for now.